you would, I'd invite you to take, to take your Bibles. Turn with me this morning to John chapter 1. As we continue looking at the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 1, and we'll be beginning in verse 19, reading down through verse 34. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may, have an answer, uh, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now when they had been sent from the Pharisees, they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And so as we look at these verses, we come this morning to the testimony of John the Baptist. The incidents that are recorded in these verses show us the manner in which John spoke of himself and the manner in which he spoke of the one before whom he was sent as a forerunner. And so as we look to these verses this morning, we'll consider them under two main headings. First, who are you? Who are you? And secondly, behold the Lamb of God. So who are you? And behold the Lamb of God. So beginning in verse 19, we find this situation where there's a group of priests and Levites who are sent out from the religious powers that be there in Jerusalem And they're sent to ask John this important question. Who are you? John was doing something there in the wilderness, there by the Jordan. And the powers that were then and existed wanted to know just who he was. Because you had this man who was out in the wilderness who was single-handedly ushering in a religious movement. Mark described the situation in Mark chapter 1 verse 5 by saying that all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is, this is not a small thing. There's lots of people 
from Judea and Jerusalem going to John. And Luke 3, 7 describes John as preaching to crowds and the crowds were going out to be baptized to him and John is preaching to them. And so you have this man who is shaking up the religious scene of Judea. People from all over are going out to hear him preach, going out to be baptized by him. And on top of all of that is the man's appearance. He's dressed in camel's hair. He has a leather, leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, as we find in Mark chapter 1, verse 6. There was something about him in these ways that was reminiscent of Elijah. So we find that description of Elijah given in 2 Kings 1, verse 8. There's, there's some correspondence between the two. There was something going on, and so there was this deputation that was sent out to find out just what was going on. So they asked John, who are you? And so John acknowledges right at the first that he was not the Christ. This is an important thing for him to clear the air with right away because the messianic expectation was running high in those days among the Jews. And so if you think forward uh, to Acts chapter 5, after you had had the apostles hauled before the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish scholar Gamaliel gave some counsel to the Sanhedrin. And his counsel indicated that in this general time period, periodically someone was rising up and claiming to be someone, either maybe claiming to be the Christ or at least claiming to be some kind of a leader. And so Gamaliel tells us about this man named Theudas, and there was a man named Judas of Galilee in the days of the census. These men would, would rise up and claim to be someone and gain followers. And then something would happen and it would all dwindle away and come to nothing. And that then formed the, the basis for Gamaliel's counsel to the Sanhedrin, which we find in Acts 5, 38 and 39, where he said to them, So in the present case I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. And so faithful Jews of this time understood that, that the Messiah should be coming soon. They probably understood something of the prophetic timetables that were given in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 9 that pointed generally as to the time in which the Messiah would come. Daniel chapter 2 had described those, those four kingdoms coming on the world stage. Nebuchadnezzar had this, this dream about the statue with the head of gold, and then there was silver and bronze and, and pottery and iron and so forth. And those various parts of the statue corresponded to four kingdoms that would come on the world stage. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Didn't take a scholar to know that in the first century, Rome was the power that was. And in Daniel 2, it was said that in the days of that fourth kingdom, the Lord was going to set up a kingdom which would never pass away. Daniel chapter 9, of course, talks about 70 weeks. Daniel was told that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. These weeks being understood as weeks of years, seven years per week would correspond to 483 years. Now there's obviously lots of disagreement about what to do with that last week, Daniel's 70th week, but we're talking about the first 69, so no need for controversy here. And so there was this period of 69 weeks between the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah the Prince. And the Jews would have understood that time was ticking and the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, who was promised in the Old Testament, would be coming soon. And you see this expectation in people like the godly Simeon. Godly Simeon, Luke 2.35, was described as looking for the consolation of Israel. You see it in Joseph of Arimathea, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. 
The Samaritan woman at the well expected that the Christ was coming. And so she said in John 4.25, I know that Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. We see it likewise in the Jewish crowd as recorded in John 7.31, where they said, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? So there's this expectation that's, that's in the air. It's not to say that everyone agreed as to what they expected the Messiah to be or to do, but they expected that he was coming. And John the Baptist, in answering this deputation, is quick to say, I'm not the Christ. But then comes the interrogation. They say, what then? Are you Elijah? And he answered, I am not. Now, as we consider John's answer to the question, we need to keep in mind what Jesus himself would later say about John the Baptist to his disciples, as we find recorded in places like Matthew 17 and Mark chapter 9. So we find in Matthew 17, verse 10 and following, that his, this is a conversation that took place as they were on the way back down after uh, the transfiguration. The disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he, Jesus, answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. And so on the one hand, John the Baptist says, I am not Elijah. Jesus said that he was Elijah. How do we, how do we make sense of this? I think one way of making sense of this is to understand that there's a possibility that the Jews who were expecting that Elijah would come prior to the coming of Christ were probably, or at least maybe, expecting the literal and actual person of Elijah the Tishbite to return, as it were, from heaven to earth to make way for the Messiah. But they were mistaken if that is indeed what they thought. Jesus, as he was uh, speaking of the, the scribes in Matthew 17, he was willing to give credit where credit was due. He agreed with the scribes because they agreed with the scripture. That is to say that Elijah does come first. The scribes said Elijah comes first, and Jesus says, yeah, Elijah does come first. In other words, they agree with Malachi Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. But Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 didn't refer to a literal coming of Elijah to prepare the way before Christ. It wasn't speaking of Elijah coming down from heaven, Elijah the Tishbite, and making way for the Lord. Rather, it was speaking of a figurative coming of Elijah. And so the angel Gabriel said to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, this in Luke chapter 1, 16 and 17, speaking of John's ministry, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There, there is in those words of, of Gabriel in Luke 1 uh, both a direct quotation of Malachi chapter 4 and also some, some echoes of Malachi 4, that prophecy uh, that we read earlier together about the coming of Elijah. Gabriel said that John the Baptist would be a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's not actually Elijah incarnate, Elijah come back from heaven. He was John, he was a different person, but 
he was the Elijah who was to come. And he did what was prophesied that that Elijah would do, according to Malachi. He turned the hearts of the fathers to their children. And so the question that was posed to John, are you Elijah, may well have been this question of a, of a direct identity and not a question of a spiritual fulfillment. They may have meant it in the sense of, are you Elijah the Tishbite, come back to life? And to such a question, John could say, no, I'm not. Even though he was the Elijah who was to come, even though he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, he's not the actual literal person of Elijah the Tishbite. Likewise, he was not the prophet. They asked him if he was the prophet, and he said no. Now, certainly he was a prophet, Jesus said it this way, Matthew eleven nine. 9, he said, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. John certainly was a prophet, but he was not the prophet. It's in this particularity of the question that the, that the situation hinges here. They, they were speaking of the prophet, and in saying this, they were thinking back to what Moses had prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, that... The Lord had said through Moses that I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The Jewish people were expecting this prophet to come, a particular prophet. And we even find the crowds saying of Jesus in John 6, 14, this truly is the prophet who was to come into the world. And they had said this of him after Jesus had fed the 5,000. So Moses had spoken about this prophet who was to come. The Jewish people were expecting that this particular prophet would come. They asked if John was this prophet. And he said no. And Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 makes it clear that indeed Jesus is this prophet who was to come. Peter applies those words of Deuteronomy 18 directly to Jesus. Jesus was the one who Moses was speaking of. And even though John was a prophet, he's not the prophet. But so far, in answering all these questions, John had only answered in the negative. He had only said who or what he was not. He had said nothing about who he actually was. And simple negation was not going to satisfy the powers that be back in Jerusalem. And so the deputation asks him in verse 22, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And John answers in the words of Isaiah, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And this is the, the stance of John the Baptist. He's humble enough to be clear about who he wasn't. He's not the Christ. He's not literally Elijah. He's not this particular prophet. But he was the voice of one calling in the desert to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was not a man who wanted attention to be given to him himself unduly. He wanted people to give attention to the Lord. Ultimately, he wanted people to listen to the Lord. Now, he came preaching. When someone comes preaching, obviously they want someone to listen. I once read about a preacher who said that he preferred preaching to full benches as opposed to empty benches. And I, I get that. A preacher preaches to be heard and to be listened to. John wanted crowds to listen to him, both to hear him and to obey what he was saying. But the thing is, is that John was not out to make a name for himself. He wanted to point people to Jesus, not ultimately to himself. We see this mentality of John here in John 1. We see it even more particularly later on when we get to John chapter 3. 
when he had served his purpose and more and more people were going over to Jesus, John, John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. And his attitude here is exemplary for its humility. He could easily have tried to have made himself out to be someone greater than he was. If he uh, had a flair for the dramatic and was less than honest, he could have capitalized on some of these questions that they were asking him. Are you Elijah? He could have said, oh yeah, that's me. Are you the prophet? Yep, that too. But he, he didn't do that. He, he was honest. He was humble. His desire was to point people to Christ. And it must be the same with us. Let's be honest about who we are as believers in Christ, but let's never seek credit for ourselves. And certainly this applies to preachers. A lot of times preachers are more visible just by virtue of the act of preaching. But the attitude of a preacher or of an elder or of a teacher must be the same as that of John. John was only interested in serving as a conduit to point to the one who was coming after him. And this applies in, to all of us in our, in our witnessing and in our doing good works before men. Our goal must ultimately never be to be seen by people for our own glory or to seek credit for ourselves. Rather, the goal of letting our light shine before men, even as those words which Jesus said, your goal is so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. They see your good works. They don't give the glory and the credit to you. They give the glory and the credit to your Father who is in heaven. Our attitude must be that which we find from Paul, 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7, where he said, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollos waters, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. We are nothing, and our goal must be ever to draw attention to Christ and not to ourselves. In verse 25, we find that there is yet one more question that they ask of John. And they ask him, why do you baptize? What are you doing out here? If you're not the Christ, not Elijah, not the prophet, why are you baptizing? And John's answer there, as recorded in verses 26 and 27, may not be entirely straightforward, but again, he directs attention away from himself and points toward Christ. John's ministry is about the one who was coming after him, the one who surpasses him in honor so much that he is not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. John says there in verse 26, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And John, in, in saying that, seems to, seems to be pointing to the fact that, that I'm, I'm baptizing you in water to prepare the way for this one who's mightier than I, who is to come after me. And as John, as John goes on and, and makes clear, he's the one who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And we see John continuing in this same humble mentality the next day when he sees Jesus coming towards him. Jesus comes the next day, verse 29. John, John sees him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And we've already seen those words from John back up in verse 15. 
John had been speaking of this one who was coming after him, who ranks before him because he existed before him. And then when he saw Jesus, he said, this is him. This is the man I've been telling you about. Now this occasion here in verses 29 and 30 seems to have taken place after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. The history of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is not explicitly contained in the Gospel of John, but it is in the other three Gospels. And we know that after Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan, he went into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil. And when we combine what we find in the other three Gospels with what we find here in John chapter 1, the picture seems to be that Jesus was baptized immediately afterwards, goes into the wilderness, and then at some point afterwards, he comes back to where John is baptizing, and we have this incident here that is described in verses 29 and 30. And John now knows who Jesus is and could announce Jesus before all of those who were listening to him. And what we find below in verses 31 to 34 is a statement from John concerning how he came to recognize who Christ was. It seems by this that he's saying that he didn't know that Jesus was the coming one or that Jesus was the one who was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit right up until the time that he came to him to be baptized. When Jesus came to him to be baptized, John obviously knew that there was something that seemed mixed up about this order of things and so, as we find in the, uh, in the other Gospels, John said to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? And Jesus said, let it be so, for it is necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. And then this, this impression that, that John has that something's, something's mixed up in this order of things, that Jesus is coming to me to be baptized, was immediately confirmed, right? As the Holy Spirit descended upon John, because... God had told John that the one upon whom he saw the Holy Spirit descend and remain, that was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. In other words, that Jesus was the one through whom the Holy Spirit would be conveyed. And so when he had baptized Jesus, John saw the Spirit descending like a dove and remain upon him. And this sign confirmed what he had initially thought when Jesus came to him for baptism. This sign of the Spirit descending and remaining on Jesus at his baptism, this enabled John to know that Jesus indeed was the coming one who was mightier than him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this is how John knew with certainty that Jesus Christ was this coming one. And then in that knowledge, after Jesus had gone away into the desert for temptation and then returned back again, John was able to point to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is our second point for this morning, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This true testimony of John is who our Lord is and what he came to do. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Now in the Old Testament, the lamb was the animal that was prescribed for the daily sacrifice, which you find in Exodus 29, 38 through 41. Most of the the sin offerings and guilt offerings and so on were, were actually bulls or goats that were prescribed in the law. But the daily sacrifice, Exodus 29, was a lamb. The Jewish theologians used to say, the morning daily sacrifice made atonement for the iniquities of the night, and the evening sacrifice made atonement for the iniquities 
that were by day. And Isaiah had described the Messiah as we read together, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And so we have the lamb as the, the daily morning and evening sacrifice. Likewise, lambs were prescribed for the sacrifice offering of the Passover. Passover was the redemption of God's people that corresponded with the last plague which the Lord had sent upon Egypt, the plague of the firstborn. The Lord was going to send that plague on the land of Egypt, a plague in which the firstborn of every household would be killed. But in His grace, the Lord had provided a way by which His people would be spared from the plague. And the manner in which that was to take place was that each household would take a lamb, an unblemished male, a year old. The lamb was to be slain at twilight on the 14th of the month of Nisan. Or if a household was too small to consume its own lamb, they could share a lamb with their neighbors. And they were then to put the blood of that lamb over the doorposts of their house on the lintel the top of the door frame. The lamb was to be roasted with fire and eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And all of it was to be eaten that night, none of it left over until the morning. If any of it was left over uneaten, it was to be burned. This was, this was the Lord's Passover. The blood was put over the house as a sign. The Lord had promised that when he saw the blood, he would pass over them and no plague would fall upon them. The Egyptians would be judged and punished, but the Lord would spare his people because of the blood of the Lamb. This was the Passover, a memorial of redemption as God delivered his people from judgment and then led them out of bondage. The Israelites were commanded to keep this feast so as to preserve the memory of what the Lord had done for them. He spared them, but he struck the Egyptians. But this Passover was recognized by the Jews as not only pointing back to the past, but also pointing forward to the future as well. It became a saying among some of the ancient Jews that in the month of Nisan they were redeemed, and in the month of Nisan they will be redeemed. And indeed we know from the history of the Gospels that Christ went up to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and was slain during the time of the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. And indeed, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when John the Baptist saw him, after it was made clear to him that Jesus was the one who was coming after him, who would baptize in the Holy Spirit, by virtue of the fact that he saw the Spirit descend and remain upon him, John says, Behold the Lamb of God. This is who he is, the Lamb of God, the one sent into the world to be a sacrifice for us. This is why he came, to be the Lamb. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now this, this really is an amazing statement. Let's, let's try to examine what it means. What, is, what does it actually mean that Jesus takes away the sin of the world? Well, for one, let's start with what it doesn't mean. This sin doesn't mean that all of the sins of all people, each and every individual, are taken away. Jesus is very clear when speaking to his adversaries in John chapter 8 about this. He says, John chapter 8 verse 21, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Again, he says to them a couple verses later, John 8, 23 and 24, you are from below, I am from above. 
You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus didn't simply say that they would die in unbelief and therefore outside of salvation, but he said they will die in their sins. And so, according to our Lord Jesus, not everyone receives the benefit of his atonement. Not everyone receives the blessing of this great fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not everyone receives the blessing of the forgiveness of sins because unless you believe in Jesus, you will die in your sins. Again, Jesus says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so on the one hand, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but at the same time, this very gospel is very clear that those who do not believe in Christ will die in their sins. And the whole Bible is clear about this. And so we've seen what is not meant by the statement. But when we think about Jesus being, as he is here called, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I think it's helpful to consider a couple of different aspects of the truth that is here presented. And the first aspect is the uniqueness of this, the uniqueness of this. Jesus is uniquely the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No other person, no other thing in all of the world has ever taken away sin. No other person, no other thing has ever taken away any sin. Any sin that has been taken away, every sin that will be taken away, it was Jesus who did it. The blood of bulls and goats cannot do that. Even though those sacrifices were ordained by God in the Old Testament time, it couldn't actually take away sin. And so we read in Hebrews 10, 1 and 2, For the law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. And those, those sacrifices, though commanded by God, were not effectual in taking away any sins. The blood of bulls and goats simply cannot do that. Nor can your prayers take away your sins. Nor can the prayers of anyone else take away sins. Your good works, whether supposed, supposedly good works or actually good works, cannot take away your sins. Nor can the good works of anyone else. Doesn't matter how good or how heartfelt the prayer was. Doesn't matter how good the good deed was or how many people benefited from it. There is nothing and there is no one in all the world that takes away sin except for Jesus Christ. If any sin is taken away, it is because Jesus is the Lamb of God and he takes away all of the sins that are taken away in the world. It's through him that the Old Testament believers were saved. It was he who took their sins away even though he had not yet come. Old Testament believers were looking forward to his coming, trusting God's promises that they had concerning his coming, trusting that redemption would come through the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The sins of Old Testament believers were taken away through Christ. The sins of New Testament believers were taken away through Christ. Any sin that's taken away is taken away because Jesus is the Lamb of God. And there is a second aspect for us to consider here as well. And that is the great scope of the work of Christ. The great scope of the work of Christ. The scope of his work is such that he takes away the sins of the world. And this points 
first of all, to the infinite worth of Jesus' sacrifice. Even though the sins of every individual person are not, in fact, taken away, nevertheless, the sacrifice was of infinite worth. It was of infinite worth because the person who suffered and died for us on the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ, is not only a true man, he's not only flesh, but he's also the eternal word. He is also true God of the same eternal and infinite substance as the Father and Holy Spirit. The sacrifice being then of infinite worth means that there is nothing lacking in his death. All who want to find salvation and life in Jesus Christ may come. All who want to find life and salvation in Christ are invited to come and should come. No one should hesitate or pull back and ponder whether the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was sufficient for him. On the testimony of God's word, I can tell you the sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient for you, sufficient for all. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We find in 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If I may borrow the language of the Brahman Consensus of 1595, this group of pastors said, We hold that the death and offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, our one Redeemer and Savior, is the single perfect ransom and redemption price, which far exceeds the sins of each and every man, even were there yet a thousand times more, and that it is a payment sufficient and superabundant for the sin of the world. Calvin's comments on this verse are likewise helpful. And when he says the sin of the world, he extends this favor indiscriminately to the whole human race, that the Jews might not think that he had been sent to them alone. But hence we infer that the whole world is involved in the same condemnation, and that as all men without exception are guilty of unrighteousness before God, they need to be reconciled to him. John the Baptist, therefore, by speaking generally of the sin of the world, intended to impress upon us the conviction of our own misery and to exhort us to seek the remedy. Now our duty is to embrace the benefit which is offered to all, that each of us may be convinced that there is nothing to hinder him from obtaining reconciliation in Christ, provided he comes to him by the guidance of faith. The atonement of Christ and the reconciliation to God that comes through Christ is offered to all. The one who wishes may indeed come and drink from the fountain of life without cost. The death of Jesus is fully sufficient to take away every sin of everyone in the world. And therefore, everyone who desires to come to him may find their sins forgiven. From this it follows that all who will not repent and believe the gospel are left without excuse. The death of Jesus is sufficient for their sin, for all of it. But the sad truth of the matter is that those who refuse to believe actually do not desire the sacrifice of Christ. They don't want him to be the Lamb of God who takes away their sins. They don't desire to submit to the gospel on its own terms and to have Christ as their advocate with the Father. And so Jesus could speak to the Jews during his time on earth in John 6.32, most of whom turned out to be unbelievers. But nevertheless, he said to them, It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. God gave them the true bread out of heaven, Jesus Christ. But they rejected him. The problem was, as Jesus pointed out in John 5.40, You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. There's no deficiency in the sacrifice of Christ. There's all kinds of deficiency and worse in the hardened hearts of men and women who will not come to Christ to have life. 
the scope of Christ's work, that he is the Lamb of God takes away, who takes away the sin of the world, points us to the infinite worth of his sacrifice for us, but it also points us in a different way to the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. Christ's death is actually effectual, actually effective in bringing about salvation for God's elect all over the world. Christ's death is sufficient for everyone in the world, but it actually is effective in accomplishing the salvation of those whom God has chosen throughout the world. In other words, Christ is the wrath-bearing, substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of all sinners all over the world, men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who have been effectually uh, redeemed from their bondage to sin. Men and women from all over the world have been forgiven and reconciled to God. Christ, the good shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep with a special intention for them, that they would be his. And now in the preaching of the gospel, as the gospel goes out all over the world, his sheep from all over the world are hearing his voice and following after him. He has effectually accomplished the redemption of his people. He has bought them, paid the price for them, and called them to himself, and they are his. And those redeemed by Christ are, according to Revelation 7, 9, a great multitude that no one could count. Now, the way is narrow, but in heaven there is a great multitude that no one can count. And as we read in Ephesians 5, 25, and 26, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her by having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And what this means then for us this morning is that the coming of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the fact that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is good news for us. Now John the Baptist took it for granted that there was such a thing as sin. And whether you believe it or not, I tell you this morning, on the authority of God's word, that there is such a thing as sin. And I tell you that you are a sinner and that you have committed sins. All of us have, all of us are sinners. If anyone says that he has not sinned, he has made God to be a liar. But God is not a liar. He's telling us the truth. He says that all have sinned and fall short of his glory. That includes you. That includes me. We've lied. We've committed murder, at least in our hearts, by hating others. We have desired someone who's not our husband or our wife. We've desired them as if they were. We've coveted the possessions of others. We've made for ourselves as many gods and idols of things that are not God and we have followed after them as if they were. Maybe you've worshipped your work or money or sports or sex or academic attainments or any number of things. Whatever it is, you have made that the all-important, all-controlling element in your life, all the while ignoring the one who is the true God, the Almighty who made the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. And God is justly angry because of your rebellion against him and because of my rebellion against him. And by virtue of being a person created in the image of God, we owe to God our obedience. Now, I realize this is very countercultural to the way our society thinks. In so many words, the world at large says, free to follow your own dreams and be your own person as long as you don't hurt or disrespect anyone else. This is not what the Word of God teaches us. Instead, it teaches us that we are responsible to God because He made us. It teaches us that we're in trouble with Him and under His wrath because we've done what He has forbidden and we've not done what He's required. And 
There's nothing in ourselves that we can do to rectify the problem. And this is why all of us, including you, including me, need someone to take away our sins. If we don't, we'll die in our sins. And this is why the gospel is good news. It's because Jesus is exactly such a one as meets our need. He's the advocate for his people. He turns the wrath of God away from them. And so I beg you this morning, if you have not trusted in Christ, to recognize your danger apart from Christ. Recognize your need for him. See in him the provision of everything that you need to give you eternal life, reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of sins, new life, perfect righteousness, make you holy. Jesus is your only hope for eternal life and a restored relationship with God. And if you refuse to repent and believe, as Jesus said, you'll die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then you'll face the condemnation of God. You will have lived without God and without hope in the world, and you'll die without hope and without God for all eternity. And so look to Christ today. Repent of your sins and believe in him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He'll take away your sins if you believe upon him. And if you're here today as a believer, allow these words to be a great comfort to you. Your Lord and Savior is this man, Jesus Christ. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God who has taken away your sins. This means that you are clean. And not only has he taken away your sins, he has given you a perfect righteousness. You've been reconciled to God. You've been brought from death to new life in him. This is cause for, for great rejoicing, great praise, great joy in God. This is also cause for obedience and surrender. As the hymn writer said, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We render up our obedience, our everything to God. Because Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is also cause for comfort. Let this truth about Jesus being the Lamb of God comfort you. Because even as a believer, you will sin. And when you do, you have an advocate with the Father whose death is sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Certainly, therefore, for yours. And so rejoice in this glorious truth and worship the Lord Jesus for who he is and because of what he has done. You can run to him in the good times. You can run to him in the bad times because he loves you, because he has paid for your sins. The wrath and condemnation that you deserve is yours no more. Romans 8.1, right? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been reconciled and now adopted into the family of God. This is all by grace. Praise be to God for this glorious grace given to us in Christ, the Lamb of God. Let's pray.